0: Hi, my name's India. This is Be More Orca, Buck the Menopause. Now, I'm not a medic, or an expert, or a celebrity. I'm just going through it myself. I was totally blindsided by my symptoms. I knew nothing about this stage of my life. And then I discovered neither did any of my friends. So I'm on a mission to find out everything I can, explore every avenue to help us manage our symptoms and get our lives back on track. The threat of breast cancer seems to loom large whenever the discussion turns to HRT. So carrying on with our theme of looking more closely at the menopause and breast cancer, in this episode, I'm back talking to Dr. Katie about the risks and the treatments available to those dealing with a cancer diagnosis. Hi, Dr. Katie. It's lovely to have you back as always. Hi, India. Nice to see you again. So today we're talking about breast cancer and it's inextricably linked to our menopause, not only with the fear of the increased risk when taking HRT, but also those women diagnosed with cancer go into immediate and often premature menopause, don't they?
1: It depends. So many women who've been diagnosed with cancer don't go into menopause. It depends on the treatment they've been given. But you're quite right. A lot of women who are having cancer treatment, whether that's for breast cancer, ovarian cancer, womb cancer, bowel cancer, may have chemotherapy. And that can often shut down the ovaries working normally and induce a menopause. And clearly, if you've got a pelvic cancer, like a womb or an ovarian cancer, part of the surgery to minimise the chance of that cancer coming back might include removing the ovaries or what we call surgical menopause. But you're quite right. Lots of women with breast cancer will have treatment as part of their acute therapy for managing the breast cancer, but then take medication that switches off the normal hormonal production of oestrogen, progesterone, testosterone by the ovaries.
0: So yes, menopause is a sequelae for many, many women. And we will come back to that Obviously, we're going to talk about that at length. But to start with, I think it would be useful to just talk us through how we should go about checking our breasts. I'm guilty of vaguely knowing, but I always feel I'm doing it slightly wrong. And I think if we're talking about breast cancer, it's something that we should all be aware of and we should all be checking for, isn't it?
1: Definitely. I mean, if it's one of the most important things we should be doing from a really, really young age. So I've taught my oldest child to do this because it's really important we get to know what normal breasts feel like. If you recognize what your breasts feel like regularly when there's no problems, you will pick up an abnormality when that arises. The NHS website has fantastic resources that help you do this if you need help. But there's also some other resources you can look at online. But try and pick a day every month where you do this consistently. Ideally, if you're menstruating, try and do it after your period, because often in the build up to your period, your lumps can feel quite dense and it's difficult to detect lumps. So let the bleed finish and then pick a day that works for you. Now, if you don't have bleeding, and I have a Mirena coil, so I don't bleed, I just do it on the first of every month when I'm in the shower because I can always remember to do that. And why do I do it in the shower? Well, if you've got soapy, slippery hands, it's really easy to slide over the breast tissue and pick up abnormalities
0: lying beneath. Because I must say, the thing of the lumpiness, I was like, well, is, is, that, is that just my breast tissue or is that a lump? Will you know when you feel an actual lump as opposed to just slightly lumpy breast tissue? You should do. And actually, that's the
1: key thing here with normality and what isn't right. We all have some different areas of density in our breasts and they're usually symmetrical. So if you pick up an area that feels firmer on one side check the other. You're looking for differences or something that feels unusual.
0: All right. Do you mean symmetrical to each boob or if it's on the left side, it'll be the right side? So, yes. If you say, for example, you've got a
1: firmer area on the outside of your right breast, check the same area on the outside of the left breast and just see if you're symmetrical. And a lot of the time we see patients who actually pick up things like their rib cage because they're pressing so deeply. And when I show them what they're feeling on both sides, they like, oh, yes, that's my ribs. I didn't realise that. So get a feel for what feels normal. Is it the same on both sides? Are both your breasts equal? feeling the same? Or is this a different texture, different feel, or different lumpiness? And that's one of the first things you should look for. So before I tell any women to feel their breasts, you should look at your breasts. And most of us have a mirror somewhere in the house. So ideally, strip your top half off. I do it before I get in the shower on the first of every month. And then you want to look. And you're looking for things like dimpling of the skin, where the skin looks wrinkly. You're looking at the nipple. If you normally have inverted nipples, then that's normal for you. But if you've got new nipple inversion, that is not normal and you should see a doctor. Okay? look for nipple discharge, look for skin or colour changes. So does something just look different? Because often an abnormality in the skin or changes in the nipple or the areola, the coloured part around the actual nipple, can indicate something going on behind the surface. So it's really important you look for that. And then I'm going to do some actions now, India. So I know everyone can't see this because they're listening, but I am going to do this because I just have to do this. I can't talk without moving. If you slowly raise your arms above your head in front of the mirror... And then right back down again, you're watching your breast tissue move. And if you've got an abnormality, sometimes you see the skin puckering or dimpling, or maybe the nipples don't move equally. Maybe one is fixed and the other one moves. Again, that should trigger a concern. So look, look at your skin, look at the breast, look at the nipple complex. And then I jump in the shower. And I get my hands really lovely and soapy. And then I start with one side. It doesn't matter which side you start with, you'll get a feel for what you want to do. And the trick really is put your hand behind your head And then you feel round the breast in a really regular movement. So you can start at 12 o'clock, 6 o'clock, doesn't matter where you start, but you're using the flat of your hand. You're not digging in with your fingers at right angles to the breast. You're using the flat of your hand and palpating, moving your hand round in a symmetrical motion. I tend to start at the outside and gradually work inwards until I get to the nipple itself. And it's really important that you go up into your armpit and feel in your armpit. Your breast tissue extends into your armpit. And also you want to look for lumps in your armpit because that's where we have lymph glands, which are really important in destroying infection and abnormalities. So if you feel lumpiness in there or lumpiness in the breast, that should trigger review. And then swap over and do the exact same thing on the other side.
0: You see, that's brilliant, and I obviously haven't been doing it anywhere near as thoroughly as that. I've just been sort of going mmm and mmm in the shower, but I'm I'm going to do that from now on. Now we talked at length in episode five about the minimal risk increase of breast cancer if you take HRT, but. I think we should very briefly just spell it out again for those people that haven't heard episode five or don't want to go back and listen, because it is very minimal, isn't it?
1: One in seven women will be diagnosed with breast cancer in their lifetime. And for the majority of women, the HRT they have or are currently using is very unlikely to be associated with the development of that breast cancer. We know that The risk is related to the age at which you start HRT and how long you use it for and the type of HRT you use. So with most types of HRT, the more years you're on HRT, the higher the risk of breast cancer. And we know that the risk reduces when you stop your HRT. Now, the key thing is here is that in women who are young, women who have early menopause before the age of 50, The HRT use for those women, you've almost got to start the clock at 50 plus in terms of breast cancer risk because all you've done prior to 50 is give them the estrogen they're not naturally producing compared with their peers who are not menopausal. And that's the difference. And That's why it's really important for young women with early menopause that actually the benefits are so, so important. But for older women, the risk is small. And actually, I'm going to give you some figures here because we know that it's related to the type of HRT in the regime. So we know that women who use oestrogen on its own, and this is applicable to women who've had a hysterectomy, there's no womb lining anywhere that's going to be stimulated and thickened by oestrogen. If we take those women, there's very little. And in fact, some studies suggested a reduced risk of breast cancer in women using estrogen only HRT.
0: A reduced risk. A study suggested a lower risk. So the idea that as you get older, you are more likely to get breast cancer the older you get. So therefore, if you are taking estrogen only HRT above the age of 50, you're actually lowering your risk from someone who isn't. Potentially. The
1: studies vary, don't they? So I would say it's it's very little risk associated with estrogen only HRT. And the, one of the most recent studies suggested that was the same as sort of one extra case of breast cancer per 200 women using HRT for five years. Another study suggested that for 1,000 women between the ages of 50 and 59, oestrogen only in that cohort, there were four fewer breast cancer cases compared with women not using any HRT at all. So my phrase would be if you're using oestrogen only HRT, there is little increased risk or very little significant increased risk. If we take oestrogen and progestogen, so these are women who have a uterus, so they have to have some progestogen that can be delivered in a combined products. It could be a combined patch, a combined pill or a standalone progestogen or the levonorgestrel-containing coils like Mirena coil, which we've talked about. That combination of those two hormones does have a slight increase in breast cancer risk associated. Now, the data we have previously, which is is widely used, is that for a 1,000 women between 50 and 59 using that form of HRT for 5 years after 50, there are four extra cases of breast cancer in that group compared to women not using HRT at all. But if we look at lifestyle, that's even more significant. So if we take women who are obese, the same thousand women, remember, it's four extra cases with the estrogen progesterone containing HRT, obesity, 24 extra cases just by being obese, three extra cases by being a smoker, Five extra cases if you drink more than two units of alcohol a day. So, you know, this is where it comes into play that for a lot of women, lifestyle is far more likely to increase our risk of breast cancer than our HRT.
0: And getting back to progestogens, now you see, I finally learned the difference between progesterone and progestogens. So there has been some research that says the type of progesterone you're on can have an impact on your risk increase. So can you talk us through that?
1: Definitely. So a lot of the progestogens, so this is the group of hormones that are similar to progesterone that we produce. So progesterone is a naturally occurring progestogen. Okay. And then we have synthetic progestogens. So it's almost like taking your body's progesterone and then adding molecules on to then make it into a similar molecule that has the same benefit, but looks slightly different to the body. And we've got most synthetic progestions in most forms of HRT. So these are often not all, but most combined patches, combined tablets. The coil, for example, the hormone containing coils are all synthetic progestogens. And then when we come to progesterone, this is the naturally occurring progestogen that's actually manufactured in a standalone capsule called micronized progesterone. Um, and there are similar progesterones in some combined oral products. So, didrogesterone, progesterone, there's been some studies suggesting that that combined with oestrogen over a five-year period didn't significantly increase breast cancer. risk. So, the, the numbers of breast cancer cases in women using that form of HRT with didrogesterone as part of their combined, it only comes in a an oral combined product at the moment, it doesn't come on its own, and micronized progesterone plus oestrogen, those two types of HRT, five years however many women compared with the women not using HRT, there wasn't a significant difference in the breast cancer cases between the two groups. But again, data is limited. I I wouldn't like to say there is zero risk for these women. It's just the evidence we have today suggests that didn't significantly increase their risk. Then you come on to other progestogens. So you've got diadrogesterone, progesterone, and then you've got everything else. So that's noristhisterone. It could be medroxyprogesterone acetate. Beware, there's some long words coming. (laughs) And then you've got the progestogens that are in all the hormonal coils. So these tend to be levonorgestrel-containing devices. So similar, but different in their own right. And then you've got noristhisterone, which is a synthetic progesterone that's amazing for bleeding. It's really great for controlling our periods. And I think it's bad to say nobody should ever take norocisterone because actually it's really good when you've got bleeding problems. and It is available in the patches, for example, will have norocisterone in and some of the tablet preparations will have norocisterone in. And it's the right choice for some women. So it's not that it's all bad. And yes, products with the more synthetic projections in have a slightly higher risk. But then you've got to think about lifestyle and you've got to think about other things like bleed control and other side effects that women might have.
0: And so we shouldn't be worried. We shouldn't be going, oh, I must go to my doctor and find out what progesterone I have in my HRT regime. And therefore, I must instantly change it onto a lower risk progesterone.
1: No, I think you've hit the mark where, you know, just because you're on a different progesterone to your friend, sister, family member, doesn't mean that the one that they are on is, is the right one for you. And at the moment, we've got shortages in micronized progesterone. So we're having to change women, even if it's short term to alternative progestogens. Because the one thing I would impress is it's not a good idea to stop the progestion element of your HRT. So if you can't get your progesterone, whether that's progesterone or whatever you're using, please don't stop and just think you'll be fine with the oestrogen-only element. Because if you use oestrogen on its own and you have a uterine lining, there is a long-term risk of cancer. I mean, obviously, it doesn't happen over a week of not using progestogen, but longer term, that is the increased risk that you want to avoid. So rather than stop, speak to your doctor, please.
0: I didn't realise there was a shortage in progestogens as well as oestrogen. Is this due to increased demand or just the companies not keeping up with... What's going on? A bit of both. I think we've seen
1: dramatic rises in HLT use over the last couple of years. And because we know that progesterone, particularly that standalone micronized progesterone, has a lovely breast profile and CyVac profile, very well tolerated. That particular product is in high demand, with perhaps supply not matching demand. But the manufacturers are aware and taking steps to improve that. And we have got supplies coming into the country. You just have to be a bit persistent. But don't worry if you can't get it at all, ask your doctor for an alternative. It's fine even if it's just for the short term. That's the preferred option to stopping your progestogen. Please don't use your oestrogen without any progesterone alongside.
0: And so obviously breast cancer is one of the most common forms of cancer for women, but it's not something that we should all be terrified about, is it? And actually the survival rates have increased hugely in the last 50 years, haven't they, in the UK?
1: Massively. And the other thing to say is that although your risk of getting breast cancer may be increased with HRT use currently or previously, the evidence suggests that your mortality, your chance of dying from your breast cancer is not increased if you've been a current or a past HRT user. A lot of the time, these tumours after HRT use can be oestrogen responsive. So they grow with the presence of oestrogen, often maybe highlight themselves a little bit more. I always like to say to patients, you know, oestrogen is a, a promoter, not an inducer. The chances are that cancer may have formed on its own anyway, and it's just become more evident. It's revealed itself potentially a bit earlier. So we are seeing fantastic treatments, lots of different trials about newer drugs for breast cancer, but also, we pick it up a lot earlier. You've got lots of promotional campaigns about breast awareness. We have the mammography screening programme. So women are going for breast examinations from a young age. We're very aware of the risks of breast cancer, particularly if there's a family link. So women are often being screened earlier, particularly if they're considered to be high risk.
0: And what age is the mammogram now? Because I'm 48, I'm slightly amazed I've never been invited for one. I used to think when in my 20s, I was like, how do you ever get your boob that flat? And now, now that I've got to certain assess- age I'm like yeah I can do it without the without the screens I'm sure just slap them on the table they'll be fine.
1: (laughs) It is pretty painful as someone who goes annually for a mammogram because I've got a strong family history of breast cancer it's not something I look forward to but so valuable. Most women if you're not at a higher risk of breast cancer will be called regularly three yearly from 50 to 70.
0: Oh, right. So it isn't until 50. No. What they are doing in
1: certain areas of the country, and particularly in Oxfordshire, this applies. You often get called a little bit early because they'll call you sometime between 47 and 50. And it's quite normal to receive your first screening letter before your are 53. Third birthday. So the idea is you get your first screen in before you turn 53. So a lot of questions I get in my clinics are, I haven't had my mammogram yet, I'm 51, is that normal? And you can normally search for your local breast screening unit. They often will try and schedule your mammogram when the local mobile screening unit is in town, because then you're not having to battle the traffic or the parking in a specialist hospital. You've got a local screen or often in supermarket car parks that you can pop to.
0: Which is great. And now you touched briefly then on estrogen receptor positive cancers and especially obviously breast cancer and I want to turn now to women who have been given a breast cancer diagnosis and it's obviously a terrifying time but then they have quite often as you said the added difficulty of being thrust sometimes overnight into certainly menopause or menopausal symptoms by shutting down their ovaries. I often think friends of mine that had induced labours and they said it was, you know, sort of 10 times worse. Is it like that? Are you forcing your body to do something that it's not ready to do, therefore it is just off the chart awful in terms of menopause symptoms? It can be. But
1: obviously, with all these things, every woman is unique. So particularly with surgical menopause, your ovaries are there one minute, and then they've been removed. And the next day, you've got no ovaries. And we often see quite marked symptoms with rapid estrogen withdrawal. And if you're going for surgery to remove your ovaries for non-cancerous reasons, it's really important you've had a discussion with a specialist or a doctor that's performing that procedure about what is likely to happen in terms of menopause symptoms and potentially the role that hormone therapy plays for you. And clearly that's different to women having breast cancer treatment or treatment for womb cancer. With medical induced menopause, so these are the groups of women we're talking about when perhaps they're having chemotherapy or they're taking a drug after they've had their surgery for breast cancer, to minimise the effect of oestrogen on those tissues. Drugs like tamoxifen or arimidex, you know, these are all drugs that are commonly used as after-cancer treatment to keep that disease-free survival as long
0: as it possibly can be. So they block the body's natural estrogen from binding with the cancer and therefore stop the supply of estrogen and hopefully stop the cancer from growing. Is that too simple a way of no, saying? No, that's it? a
1: really good way of putting it. They are slightly different. So if we talk about drugs like tamoxifen, these do block estrogen connecting with breast cancer cells and dividing. So that's essentially how they work and they are often used after cancer surgery and chemo to improve that disease-free survival. The other group of drugs are aromatase inhibitors. So these are anastrozole, letrozole, arimidex is a brand name, um, and they work slightly differently in that they. we know we produce estrogen not just from our ovaries. We produce it in our skin, in our muscle, like from our adrenal glands. And what we don't want if we've had a hormone, sensitive cancer is to have any oestrogen flying around. So they work slightly differently and they stop our body converting androgens, for example, so things like testosterone and testosterone-like products into oestrogen. So it's minimising the sources of oestrogen from other places. And again, by reducing that circulating oestrogen, you're limiting the exposure of those potentially abnormal cells to oestrogen.
0: So those aromatase inhibitors, they are only to be used post-menopausally or if you don't, have a uterus. Is that right? Because they don't stop the ovaries from making oestrogen. Spot
1: on. You can have them if you have still got a uterus because the uterus is irrelevant here. It's
0: really the menopausal status. They tend to be given to women who are post-menopausal. Whereas the other ones, the tamoxifen and things like that, they can be used pre-menopausally and post-menopausally.
1: Yeah, they don't stop the ovaries producing it. They block the oestrogen-stimulating from cells. So it's a bit like saying there's oestrogen there, but you're not going to see it. So it's almost shading the cells from the oestrogen and the chance of the oestrogen stimulating the cell development. So they tend to be used in pre- or perimenopausal women um, if they've had a cancer diagnosis, breast cancer diagnosis.
0: And there are some trials that have been around, probably from the same time as the WHI, around the turn of the century, which just sounds hideous, doesn't it? 1999, 2000 era, turn of the century just makes me feel very old. (laughs) They looked into oestrogen receptor positive breast cancer and its recurrence when using HRT. And they did the same thing that the WHI did for HRT in women. They said it massively increases the risk of recurrence, you shouldn't ever use it and actually now in the same way as the WHI they're starting to be a bit debunked aren't they? There's two main trials really, we've got the
1: Stockholm trial and the HABITS trial, they both sort of happened around the same time, these were randomised control trials in the late 90s and the HABITS trial was stopped early because they showed even after two years there was a high risk of recurrence of cancer in the women using HRT compared with the women not using HRT the Stockholm trial actually got to about four years of patient follow-up and didn't show a significant increase in risk of recurrence of breast cancer with HRT. But because of the HABITS trial, they both agreed to stop the trials early. And there were a few issues with all these trials. It's about analysing the data and analysing what's been used. And there were a few issues. So, for example, the HABITS trial, the one that was stopped earlier, had more patients who'd had positive lymph nodes. So when they'd had their treatment, there was evidence that the cancer was in the lymph nodes already. So maybe more advanced cancers and fewer women were taking tamoxifen at the same time. So therefore, the risk is going to be potentially higher because you're not on an oestrogen blocking drug. And the Stockholm trial used cyclical HRT. So that's your monthly bleed HRT, which has Two weeks of oestrogen only, generally, and two weeks of oestrogen plus progestogen. And so it's not an accurate reflection of the population that could potentially be using HRT post breast cancer diagnosis.
0: And also I read that they had abnormally high doses of progestogens and the synthetic not what we use today. And actually the the Stockholm trial published its results 10 years later, did more of a follow-up and their long-term follow-up showed that the mortality rates showed absolutely no difference. You're right and
1: most of the women using HRT in these groups were using oral estrogens with synthetic progestogens and actually quite high doses which is not reflective of practice today. So with all these things, more trials
0: needed, more studies needed. <laughs> As I say, it needs to be our subheading for this uh, podcast, isn't it? More trials needed, please. <laughs> um, but it's not all doom and gloom, is it? There are new drugs for treatment that have literally just been, um, oh, what's the word, oh, brain fog. Approved. Uh, thank you. They've been Approved. <laughs> They've been approved in America by the FDA and we are yet to approve them. The drugs you're talking
1: about are, long words coming up, neurokinin-3 receptor antagonists. I make that really simple because I'm all about simplicity. So we know that flushes and sweats, and this is really what they're targeting, flushes and sweats are mediated by lots of different things. Oestrogen levels, the hormones that try to stimulate our ovaries, and something called neurokinin B, which is produced in the hypothalamus in the brain. And because of the involvement in all these neurotransmitters and hormones in the formation of flushes and sweats, it's been an area of research that actually, if we don't just look at estrogen, if we look at neurokinin B, and we somehow switch it off or reduce how much of that there is circulating, can we improve sweats and flushes? And that has happened. So we know that if we block the neurokinin-3 receptor, and that's what these drugs do, we significantly reduce sweats and flushes. And actually, the studies are looked at women, and really within three months, about 60% improvement in flushes and sweats. And that has been a domino effect in improving sleep because you're not waking up so much. Then your energy improves, cognitive function improves. It's a bit of a positive cycle. So huge, huge benefits with this group of
0: drugs. And what does that mean for people with a breast cancer diagnosis? Can they use these drugs? Is it got nothing to do with oestrogen then? Spot on. It's
1: not HRT. It's acting on a different pathway. It's not giving you oestrogen. Therefore, it's a safe therapy for women who have had breast
0: cancer. So that's a huge game changer. So, when are we likely to approve that then? Oh, how long's a piece of string in it <laughs> Yeah, come on, Katie, you're in charge of all of this, aren't you? <laughs> so, in November 22,
1: the Department of Health and Social Care asked NICE to conduct an appraisal of this drug. It has been delayed slightly for various reasons, but it is undergoing review at the moment. So, the information I have available in June 2023 suggests potentially by the end of the year, we will have this drug approved in the UK. UK for prescribing. And I'd love to say it will be widely available and everyone can have it, but it will be a phased rollout, no doubt, and there'll be specific cohorts looked at. And we need clear guidance of the groups of women that can have it.
0: But it could potentially be a game changer for women suffering from crippling menopause. Well, actually, any menopause symptoms. They don't need to be crippling anymore, do they? Absolutely.
1: And I think if you've got those, what we call vasomotor symptoms, hot flushes and sweats, this is a great treatment option that doesn't then increase your risk of your cancer coming back. And we know that there are other options, which we've talked about before for breast cancer patients, but perhaps not as effective as this drug, which is why it's sort of being a really novel agent that has potentially great efficacy
0: for this group of patients. That's brilliant. And we just spoke then about crippling menopause symptoms if you've had breast cancer. There are some women that just say, I can't function, I need to sort out my menopause symptoms. Do you think HRT could be a last option for breast cancer survivors with crippling symptoms? Do you have any patients that have made that choice?
1: Yes, and I have patients and I have had patients over the last decade that have chosen to take HRT. It's a complex discussion. The guidance is that we should encourage women to try non-hormonal alternatives first that don't increase recurrence of cancer but I accept, and I think those patients do, that quality of life and function for some women is so adversely affected by their menopause symptoms that they will accept an increased risk of cancer recurrence in order to have improved quality of life, even if that potential for recurrence is increased. And it's an individual discussion. It's a careful discussion, usually with a menopause specialist like me, looking at the information the limited data we have, and talking about the types of HRT that we're currently prescribing and the potential for harm. But it's a it's a case-for-case case discussion. And I think for a lot of women that come to me, never tried any treatment at all. They're, I feel really sad for these women that are told, sorry, you, you've had cancer, I can't offer you anything. And there's lots of suitable alternatives. And for those women, we try the alternatives first. But some women have tried absolutely everything and say, look, I can't function like this, I want to try some HRT. And that's ultimately their choice.
0: And I read an article that said 85% of women, one of those classic uh, statistics, isn't it? 85% of women said they didn't get any menopause help after their cancer. And... Why are women not being fully warned about the menopause symptoms that might be hitting them, or what their options are, especially during a cancer diagnosis? You've obviously just seen I've put my head in my hands <laughs> yes.
1: as I despair. These these women should be told you you know you're going to have this treatment, and often the the surgery if they've had mastectomy or their lymph nodes removed or radiotherapy that may not affect their menopausal status. It's often chemotherapy or the drugs used afterwards that do so These women are often going through a stage of treatment where they've had no impact on their menopausal status, and then it's later on. But you know, if you're giving a treatment to a person, it doesn't matter whether it's HRT, chemotherapy, a blood pressure tablet, the side effects should be mentioned. You know, you may experience the following which can affect your quality of life. Please let me know. So I despair, India, because that should be part of the discussion that this is going to induce menopause. And are you prepared for that?
0: And obviously, if they decide to go on to HRT, that needs to be a shared decision-making process, doesn't it? I mean, obviously, initially with the woman, but then you bring in the oncologist and the surgeon and am I right in thinking that it's usually the oncologist who suggests which treatments whether they go on tamoxifen or aromatase inhibitors but does the oncologist know enough about hormones to make that judgment on the majority of cases
1: that the oncologists do I mean there's more and more specialist menopause oncology clinics being set up I contribute to the one in Oxford and I've got a colleague who's a breast surgeon in another part of the country who picks my brains regularly and I, and I may well actually contribute to to her weekly MDT because the perspectives differ. If you all you see every day is breast cancer, whether you're a breast surgeon or an oncologist, your view will be slightly skewed in terms of HRT is bad, HRT and breast cancer bad, no, no, no. And I completely get that viewpoint if you're operating on women and seeing women day in, day out with breast cancer. I have the converse. I see the women presenting to me with crippling symptoms that are affecting quality of life and very much a balanced perspective. And yes, in an ideal world, I'm sure none of us would do anything that increased our risk of developing a long-term serious health problem. But we make choices, don't we? Some of us choose to smoke. Some of us choose to drink alcohol. Some of us are obese. I know that's not always a a choice. It might be contributed to lots of different things. Some women may choose not to exercise. And again, that may be difficult and not not something they can choose to do. But I think it's important that we look at the individual woman and what their pre-existing health problems are, what their thoughts are, what their risks are, and make that decision in a shared way that there's both perspectives being discussed.
0: Well, it's great to hear that you are being drawn into oncology multidisciplinary teams is MDT, isn't it? Yes. Sorry, they're my abbreviations. (laughs) I had to look it up. I had to look it up. It's fine. (laughs) Uh, But I just thought for the listener, multidisciplinary teams, that is superb that there are people out there that are saying we need menopause specialists on hand to be able to answer those questions for those women going through this. And it's not just an oncologist. Because quite often you hear these stories about women being asked to basically decide between an oncologist's advice who's saying, don't ever, and a menopause expert who's saying, well, you can. And that's really hard to put that onto a woman who thinks, well, I haven't got the medical know-how, you're meant to help me.
1: Uh, Completely. And I think you will still have those differing views because we're working from different perspectives. But that's where I will always involve an oncologist, even if I know their opinion is going to be the opposite to mine. I have a courtesy to say, your patient is considering doing this. And often that's useful in terms of giving more information. So how long ago was this? What are your thoughts? How do you feel this woman's tumour profile will respond? What's your degree of concern? So often tumours have a degree of oestrogen receptor expression and that's variable. There might also be other risk factors coming into play, which would make HRT less favorable for that woman. And I think that woman needs to understand if that hasn't been verbalized in a previous discussion, because it may well be that previous oncology reviews focused on the acute treatment that lady was receiving and how she was doing and what her scans show. And she didn't feel she was in a position to bring up a discussion about menopausal symptoms or potential for using HRT. So that woman may not know that perspective from her oncologist. And that's where I come in to try and coordinate that as well.
0: And there's an element of, I know that we spoke about it briefly before, that idea that oncologists tend to go, you should be so lucky you're still alive. I've managed to sort out your cancer. A few hot flushes is the least of your problems. And I think that's not a good narrative for women to hear. They need support, don't they?
1: Yeah, it should be a balanced discussion. And, you know, we prescribe an awful lot of medication and treatments in healthcare that have potential adverse consequences. And for every treatment that we recommend, we discuss risks and benefits. And ultimately, if the benefit is in favour of the treatment, then clearly the patient needs to understand that because of longevity of life or side effects or what have you. But it's about giving them the information so they can make that decision.
0: I know you probably don't know this. It's an awful question to ask. But how long are breast cancer patients waiting after either their treatment or their diagnosis to see a menopause specialist?
1: It's variable. I can say this because I know that some areas in the country, patients will wait 9 to 12 months for an appointment.
0: They're not fast-tracked. You feel they should be fast-tracked from... A diagnosis completely, and it's so variable,
1: India. So you've got areas where there's perhaps a menopause specialist sitting on that multidisciplinary team meeting. So when surgery is contemplated or treatments are contemplated, this is before the woman is menopausal. There's involvement from that menopause specialist in terms of how that patient's likely to experience acute menopausal symptoms or consequences of their treatment, and you've got a plan in place before that's happened. Now that's a gold standard, isn't it? You know, information sharing before the events happen. Patient knows what to. To expect will either take the view that actually, no, I'm armed, I'm forewarned, I'll ask for help if I need it, or those treatment options. If I can't cope with that, that would really affect me. This is how it might not allow me to work, function, etc. Talk to me about what options I've got available. I want to know, so I'm ready to go. But again, patient choice. And then you've got areas where perhaps it's further down the line. So it might be that that patient's on a bit of a roller coaster ride with surgery, chemotherapy, treatment, and is just focused on getting through that life saving treatment. And then when they're on their three or six month review with their oncologist, that's when things start to go a bit pear-shaped for them and maybe it's then more difficult for them to access. So yeah, in an ideal world, I think where treatment results in menopause symptoms or is likely to, it would be really good to at least have that discussion.
0: And what help can they get? Are there sites they should be looking at? If you are struggling with your menopause symptoms and you've had a very aggressive estrogen receptor positive cancer, what can you do? Where can you go to get help? I would say for all
1: cancer patients that have menopause symptoms associated with a treatment, whether it's breast, ovarian, womb, endocrine, bowel, you name it, potentially there's a chance of you having menopause symptoms, look at the British Menopause Society website and the Women's Health Concern, which is the patient arm of the British Menopause Society. There's some fantastic data on there about what women can experience and expect to achieve after a breast cancer diagnosis. The British Menopause Society has have something called BMS TV. And on there is Joe Marsden, who's an extremely excellent speaker talking about breast cancer patients and what options are available. And you can access all free of charge. The other thing I would say for women who may be having cancer treatment very early, so well before the age at which menopause would normally start, so women in their maybe teens, 20s, 30s, early 40s, have a look at the DAISY Network, which is designed specifically for young women and there are many many women on there who've maybe had their ovaries removed surgically to treat cervical cancer for example or womb cancer or ovarian cancer and and there's lots and lots of information on there as well and remember you've got access to healthcare professionals through your gp surgery and if needed a specialist like me through an nhs specialist center and please don't feel there is nothing out there for you every decision you make after cancer treatment or before cancer treatment should allow you to discuss your questions and your queries so if you're not getting those answers probe a bit deeper and ask for more help
0: katie as always you are just a fount of knowledge and i love talking to you thank you once again katie you're always amazing pleasure nice to speak to you india Next time we're continuing to discuss breast cancer and I'm talking to Danny Binnington who started her brilliant podcast and organisation Menopause and Cancer after her diagnosis at the age of 33. We're talking about how she coped with her very aggressive triple negative cancer and a young family. How the discovery of her BRCA gene led her to decide to have a double mastectomy and later surgery which brought on a medical menopause. She learned to self-advocate And went from being mute in her doctor's appointments to being an empowered patient with her toolbox of movement, nutrition, hormonal and non-hormonal medicines, and taking care of her mental health. If you want to be more orca, head to bemoreorcapod.co.uk For all the latest on what's coming up, I've cherry-picked articles to keep you informed so you don't have to sift through the news and become a member Tell me what matters to you and what questions you want answering. Help shape the pod and help other women just like you, so we never have to feel like we're going it alone again. And if you've liked this episode, please subscribe, as it helps with those pesky algorithms and lets others find us and become part of our pod. And follow me at b.more.orca for my no-filter menopause diary.